Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for being here. Today's story begins in June of 2020. At the time, Dr. James Whitfield was barely a month into her promotion as principal of Colleyville Heritage High School. He was the first black principal of the school, which had nearly 2,000 students. For reference, the city of Colleyville, it sits just outside of Dallas, Texas. It has a population of 26,000 people, 87% of which are white. Those numbers will mean something to you in a little bit. But let's go back to June 2020. You probably remember that summer, the unjust killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and the protests that followed. With class out of session, Dr. James Whitfield remained at home with his wife and three kids. As the urgent calls for racial justice and police reform continued, he watched his peers, both educators and administrators, send impassioned emails about this historic moment, the possibility of change that could come from this great racial reckoning, a term the media continued to use. Then came the morning of June 3rd. Whitfield couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned before eventually getting out of bed. He sat down at his desk and began drafting an email to Colleyville High School parents. At 4.30 in the morning, he sent it. The content of the email, which you'll hear in our conversation, would irrevocably alter the course of his life, both inside the classroom and out. The focus of his letter was around our ongoing battle with race in America. Our schools set the foundation for our future, he writes. Education is the key to stomping out ignorance, hate, and systemic racism. It's a necessary conduit to get to liberty and justice for all. It's a great responsibility, but one that I'm so happy to embrace with you. And for a short time after, both 
colleagues and parents of the school, seemed eager to embrace this responsibility too. The email was met with a warm reception. Members of the community sent thank you notes, asking what they could read to be better informed, to be anti-racist. But then, a year later, in the summer of 2021, that warmth had dissipated. The conversation shifted from thinking critically about race to the perils of critical race theory, or commonly referred to as CRT. And Dr. James Whitfield, well, by virtue of being a black principal in a predominantly white city, who suggested plainly in that email that black lives do matter, found himself in the crosshairs of a conservative community, a community that insisted he added CRT to the curriculum and should be fired immediately. Come the fall of 2021, they got their wish. Woodfield was fired. His removal as principal of Colleyville High School came as 30 states proposed constraints on any substantial teaching of America's racist history in schools. In that time, as they do today, conservatives claimed critical race theory was fundamentally anti-American. But here's the thing. Dr. James Whitfield, for all that he was accused of, never taught critical race theory. In that email I mentioned, he didn't propose educational reforms. He wasn't upending the curriculum. When the school board elected to not renew his contract, they said it had nothing to do with the accusations from parents. They cited insubordination, deleting emails, and other deficiencies in his performance. But you can read between the lines here. So how does this happen? How does a beloved principal, an educator promoted twice in three years, how does he lose his job for something he didn't do? To understand, we have to go back to 2019. And to do that, I had to call up Dr. James Whitfield himself. Dr. James Whitfield, thank you for being here. So great to be here with you, Sam. There are many places to begin, but uh, I want to start at the beginning here, which is in the spring of 2019, you're hired as the principal at Heritage Middle School. Now, later that fall of 2019, you're asked by your colleagues to present a PowerPoint presentation called Breaking the Barriers, Talking About Our Differences. What was in that presentation? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I was assistant principal at Colleyville Heritage, two colleagues of mine and I, we talked about coming up with a presentation for the upcoming school year's professional learning conference. You know, districts, they have professional learning days. And what we had on the agenda for that fall was just an opportunity for educators to sign up for choice sessions. And so there were a lot of different things out there, but we really wanted to focus in on embracing the diverse differences that are evident in our buildings each day. We feel like when you know people, know their background and the stories and lived experiences that they come with, that we're able to more you know, effectively work together and build trust and build these bonds that we know will be needed to move the needle for our kids. And so, you know, that presentation was just that. It was putting out there that this false notion of the good, bad binary when it comes to racism, talking about how, you know, we do have systemic racism and talking about how do you identify, you know, how our identities that we carry with us impact our work and impact how we interact with each other's. 
that's what we were doing in that presentation, trying to break down those barriers, right? And so what's what's really interesting about this particular presentation is that I had the least part of the presentation specifically because one of the ladies that was the curator of the presentation said, we don't need to be trotting the black guy out there yet again to have to be the one to engage people in this conversation. To be clear, you're presenting this presentation with two other colleagues. Correct. A Hispanic female and a white female. And so they had the bulk of the presentation. My part of the presentation was where, you know, I talked about my experience with my grandfather, who on my mother's side is white and, you know, experience with him and his background and, you know, the things that he believed and how meeting me, his black grandson, kind of shifted his perspective and helped him learn more about, you know, a different side of the world than he had been led to believe. But what was interesting about that particular presentation, again, was that it wasn't curated by me, but that would be something that the people in the community, so to speak, this small minority group of people that were rather loud, it would be something that they would point to as me being this proponent of of critical race theory um, and leading the charge in that regard. Now, it's also worth mentioning that this presentation, which had 29 attendees, comprising of administrators, staff, and teachers, like any session, had to be approved by the district prior to being published. Is that right? Everybody had to submit, you know, what you were presenting on that day. Yeah, we were, we were allowed to go ahead and move forward with the presentation. In this presentation, it says uh, what it is and isn't about. The group said, this is a session in which vulnerability is needed a session that meets people where they are, a session about all differences, not just race. What it isn't about is a session on how to teach your black students, a session to decide who is right and who is wrong, a session to hear a lecture or see a presentation. You know, it was clear in our our goals and our, our objective for the presentation itself. You know, this wasn't about shaming anybody, as they like to say, right, causing guilt or discomfort. This is really about us all being vulnerable and knowing that we all come with these diverse experiences inside this space each day. And in talking with the educators in that room, they found it so powerful, not only as the adults, but going, how does this relate to my classroom? And how can I I feel so much more safe with people that I've generally worked with for years? I feel so much safer now knowing these things. How much could this transfer to my classroom and creating that safe and welcoming environment for for all kids. And so anything that is related to diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, diverse differences, that was something they're going to try to grab and construe as critical race theory. That presentation is made in the fall of 2019. You and your colleagues take the lessons learned from that presentation into 2020. Obviously, March comes, the pandemic brings everything to a halt. Come May 18th of 2020, you're hired as the principal of Colleyville Heritage High School. In fact, you were the first Black principal in the school's 25-year history. The next week, on May 25th, George Floyd is killed in Minneapolis by Officer Derek Chauvin. By the time early June comes around, George Floyd, Mon Arbery, Breonna Taylor had all been killed. By the time June came around, Fortune 500 companies had begun posting black squares in solidarity with the protesters 
marching around the world. And then came June 3rd, 4.30 a.m., you in your house, awake, writing an email to parents from the high school. For people who don't know, how would you describe what's in there? You know, that email for me, you mentioned all of the things going on around the world during this time. And, you know, in that email, I I state towards the beginning that, yes, we face this pandemic right now, this disease that's floating around, right, uh, that we can't see. But we also face another pandemic, and that is systemic racism. And I went on to say that, you know, in my then 42 years, almost 42 years of life, I've never before seen people come together the way that they had come together to denounce systemic racism and say that they were willing to learn and grow. And it was inspiring that while we were going through this this tragedy, this devastating time, I found hope in that. Those conflicting emotions just got me out of bed at 4.30 and I typed up that letter and You know, I ended with, as I end most letters, telling people, hey, I love you. I'm here with you. I want to work with you. I know it's going to be hard. I know we're going to have to have uncomfortable conversations, but we're going to be able to get through this. And, you know, I believe in the power of us as a collective. So that was generally it. And the comments that came from that when I sent it, the feedback was positive. People, you know, said, hey, thank you for sending this. I've never seen a school personnel you know, send something out like this. And, you know, I just really, really appreciate you sending it. And so that was, I didn't receive one negative remark at the time when that email was sent. Can I read from the end of your email? Yeah, sure. Let's not allow this moment to be a flash in the pan. Let's commit to the work and the hard, vulnerable, and uncomfortable conversations that we must have to ensure we grow personally and professionally. Our youth are always watching us, but now more than ever, Our young people of color specifically are watching to see how we will respond. Will we retreat back into comfort or will we advance with great vigor into the often turbulent waters that come with tearing down systems of oppression? I'm geared up and ready for demolition for our kids and our nation. In thinking about what was to follow, is there any part of you that would have written that in any other way now? I would send it out again because that is how I feel all too often, especially as educators and especially as educators of color. We're in these spaces where we feel limited on what we can say or how we need to say things. And we're not able to express and be our full selves in many of these places And I just reached a point where, you know, I'm reflecting on what is my responsibility as a leader, as someone in my community that people look to for for guidance and support and encouragement? What is my responsibility to speak truth and help move our, our community and our country forward? There's not a day that's passed that I've gone, well, I wish I would have said it this way or I wish I would have done this or maybe I should have edited this. That email came straight from my heart. Every word in that email, I meant it with a deep, deep conviction. And I would stand by that until the end. It's funny. You said that that email comes from your heart. And even as you replay it now, I can sense that it produces a lot of emotion in you. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, as I'm talking to you about it, I'm going back to that that night. You know, it was literally 4.30 in the morning as I was typing that. It was no secret that I was the first black principal at this school. And knowing that I'm serving, you know, about half the student population are students of color. And knowing that I'm in this position that people are looking to me, just like I would look to others, right, in leadership positions and going, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to say? But really, what are you going to do in this moment to help move us forward? That was my goal and intent. It was heavy on my heart. And I knew people needed to hear something. But like I say, more importantly, they needed to see something. And so that was just kind of a jumping off point saying, hey, we can do this. And then as we went into the school year, even though we experienced one of the most challenging school years in our lifetimes, we did some amazing things for for kids. In that school year, between August 2020 and May of 2021, what did you do that you're proud of? We created the first diversity advisory council at the school, and this was the first diversity advisory council in the school's history. When we did a, um, you know, Martin Luther King Day, that's a holiday. It's a student holiday, staff holiday, and people like to think of that as a day off. But if you know anything about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, he was all about service. And so our slogan was a day on, not a day off. And so we changed it into a day of service. We had student groups, fraternities from the area, law enforcement. Tons of people showed up to collect basic goods and necessities for people in our community. Underserved students could come and grab basic necessities, you know, at the end of the week or whenever they needed it. We gathered so many items that we were able to distribute those district wide and help, you know, schools all around the district. And so those are just a couple of things that we did to be about, you know, creating this sense of community, celebrating diversity and equity and inclusion. While you're creating that experience of equity inclusion, and diversity. There is something happening on the other end of the political spectrum. At that time, in September of 2020, Trump produces an executive order that calls for new federal workplace requirements aimed at promoting unity by barring training on divisive concepts, including race or sex stereotyping, or any other instruction painting the United States as fundamentally racist. Come March through May of 2021, Fox News becomes fixated on the term critical race theory. They utter it over 1,900 times in that three and a half month span. But come April of 2021, you're given a job evaluation that gave no sign that your career was in danger or that you were in threat of being terminated. In fact, your job evaluation yielded a 2021 to 2022 contract in which you would remain as the principal of Colleyville Heritage High School. Come May and June of 2021, school is out for summer. Then July 26, in the thick of summer, there is a GCISD Board of Trustees meeting featuring a stream of animated, irate parents levying claims against you. Next on the agenda is our open forum section of our board meeting. 2018, my oldest son, he was three years old. So they had an open house. They invited the community. And my son and I, we went down there and I was shocked at what I saw. It was so over the top. It was like a temple to critical theory, this school. 
Okay, we need our schools to, as people have said, focus on academics, and we need to figure out how to, how to smooth this out. I'm here to talk about how incredibly concerned I am about what is happening within the district, especially with social justice conditioning in the classroom, waste, wasting countless hours in the classroom on a weekly basis, covering topics on social justice, equity, an array of emotional topics will get these children nowhere. There's nothing loving or kind to teach children they are victims and wasting their precious class time on nonsense. Erase these programs from our classrooms and prioritize education in the schools again. Thank you. I've seen the curriculum change drastically. Here's a screenshot of a book titled, A Book About Whiteness. That's racist. This is in our elementary schools. I'm one of these people that have been stuck at home for the last 16 months, and I've had plenty of time, and I've done some research, and I'm getting involved locally. And I want you all to know, we all are starting to get that way. And we're going to get fired up in the next election. Yeah. If you guys don't change it, it's going to be over. As you're watching these parents take issue with you and speak in front of the board of trustees, what's going through your head? One thing that's important to note, and it's been reported a lot as parents, and I just want to make sure I clarify here, because there's a lot of media reports out there to say these parents had an issue and all this. The people that were doing the stirring of the pot, by and large, were not parents of students that I served. They were phrased as community members. Some of them had no kids still in the school district. And many of them, most of them, had younger kids in the school district. And so if you even back up prior to that July 26th board meeting, the whole school year of 2021, the people that got up there and spoke out loud, they had been in this little echo chamber on Facebook saying these same things. What were they saying? He is the CRT boogeyman, essentially. Look at this presentation that he gave. Look at this email that he sent out, you know, referring to the George Floyd email. He hates our schools. He's trying to destroy our schools. You know, but all these comments were happening in an echo chamber that I could see if I went in there, but I didn't go in there. I'd have people send me screenshots of what things they would say, but I didn't have time to fool with that because I'm trying to lead a comprehensive high school of 2,000 students, almost 200 employees through the hardest year in school history. So for me, it was just nonsense. This is, there's not going to be anything come of this, and we're just going to keep it moving because we got work to do for our kids. So you get to July 26th, and I'm not even watching the board meeting at first. But your wife is. Neither one of us were watching the board meeting at first. We get a text from one of our friends, you know, signaling, hey, like, I'm sorry this is going on. Like, you, sh you know, you shouldn't have to deal with this. And so I immediately flip open my laptop and, you know, rewind and go on there. And then my wife and I are watching this and we're just shook by it all. We're just going, what on earth? Because you've got this complaint that is baseless and this guy spewing nonsense. I've never heard from this gentleman. <laughs> Email call, nothing. Why don't we play a clip from that man you're referring to? And just to be clear, this person did not have children in your school district, right? Correct. That guy. Here he is. I was first made aware of Mr. Whitfield's extreme views on race when a concerned friend of mine shared with me a letter he sent to parents and students in the summer of 2020. In this letter, he promotes the conspiracy theory of systemic racism, 
Later in this letter, he goes further. Yes. We really prefer that you don't criticize a particular employee of the district. Okay. If you have any issues, we... How about you fire that class? Sir. Mr. Sir. Encouraging all members of our community to become revolutionaries by becoming anti-racist. We know it will not be in the text. As it has been said, the revolution will not be televised, but trust that we are here. Because of this extreme views, I ask that a full review of Mr. Whitfield's tenure in our district be examined and that his contract be terminated effective immediately. And so he gets done railing and it's almost like you're going back in time. You know, if in the, in the 50s and 60s, the crowds that would be in the courtroom, right, when somebody was on trial, because this was for him, this was putting me on trial. Right. You could tell that's the kind of he was presenting this case that this guy, this James Whitfield, this, you know, and he was really specific not to use doctor. <laughs> he would say, Mr. And, and not that I'm a big use my title, but you could tell he was digging at that. Right. But then at the end, you hear fire him. You know, you need to get rid of him. People just yelling in the background. I was just taken aback. This is not real. Who are these people? I guess it's kind of naive of me to say I was blindsided because I saw this happening behind the scenes. But just for it to be so blatant and open, that was something that I hadn't experienced. And so when you make those kind of public inflammatory statements about someone, you can't expect someone to then, you know, sit there and take it. You do respond in a Facebook post shortly after that board meeting. Are there any complaints that they raised that have any foundation of truth? If you listen to these people carefully, they'll tell you that it's really not about critical race theory. They'll tell you that it's about they're not okay with someone identifying as LGBTQ+. They'll tell you that they want things to go back to a time, you know, as one gentleman stated, look at 10 years ago, how we were doing. Well, what do you think the district looked like 10 years ago? And so I would say if they have a problem with me being an advocate for all kids, celebrating diversity, creating an inclusive environment where all kids feel celebrated and not just tolerated, all adults feel that same way. That we're about, you know, breaking down systems that have been in place, such as, you know, under identification of black and brown students for gifted and talented programs. You know, if those are the complaints that they have against me, then I stand guilty as charged. That's what they really have a problem with. It's those things. And those are the things that I know to be right and good for, for all people within that organization, especially for our kids. But as far as the critical race theory piece of it, that has no merit because nobody, <laughs> you talk to any educator, especially in Texas, that's, that's just not something that we are afforded a, a liberty of time to be able to do. It's not included in our standards. And yet, in spite of these criticisms not being entirely or at all true, you do receive weeks later a disciplinary letter from the district placing you on paid administrative leave. Shortly thereafter, they decide to cut ties with you unrelated to the board meeting complaints or the Facebook photos of you and your wife, which some members of the community took umbrage with. Can you explain the content of these photos for the people who may not know about them? 
my wife and I, on our 10th anniversary, we went to Playa del Carmen. And there was a group there that was doing a, a wedding shoot at that particular resort. And they approached us about doing some pictures. And so we were excited. We were there on our anniversary and we got to take professional free photos. And so we're completely clothed on the beach. We are a couple deeply in love. I'm looking at the photos right now. I love these photos. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know, we're actually going to be going to Mexico here in a couple of days. And, and I've told my wife, I was like, we've got to take some more photos. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a good idea. Make sure you bring the camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I was just, you know, it was just, yeah, that those were the photos that, you know, some people had issue with. You know, in Colleyville, as of 2019, it has a population of 87.9% white. It has an average median income of $162,000. These photos are, quite frankly, two attractive people on a beach, a black man and a white woman, celebrating their anniversary. They are sensual, attractive photos. Do you think some of their issues are racially motivated? I've seen my colleagues that are not black or not in interracial marriages and seeing them take part in, you know, on social media and things much more risque, so to speak. And I don't know that that's an issue with people in the community, right? So why is it an issue with you? That's a great question. When I look at those photos, I see two people that are deeply in love. But I'm not naive to know that there's people in that community. You just described the makeup. I know there's some deep-rooted things there. At that time, I was the first Black principal at Heritage Middle School. I was also the first Black principal at that school as well. And so seeing a guy come into this space that that's not who we are, so to speak, I can see where that could have ruffled some feathers. And then taking it a step further, my goodness, he's got a white wife. What are we going to do? <laughs> that's, that's threatening. I know that that is threatening. Uh, to a lot of people. And what what I don't think a lot of people understand, they think we're further along than what we are. You know, I was born about a decade after Loving versus Virginia. My parents, you know, I have a black father, a white mother. My parents, just 10 years before my birth, it would have been illegal for them to get married. We think that these are just vestiges of the past. There are still people living that have this deep-rooted, it's a visceral response to interracial marriages. I want to stick with something you just said, which is that a lot of people in your community, but I think also a lot of Americans around the country, feel that we are farther along than we actually are when it comes to race. And in fact, within that board of trustees meeting, there are two women that relay this very sentiment. Why don't we take a listen? We are the greatest nation in the world because we base our nation on God and the Bible. We are the land of the free because of the brave. Will you please be brave and stand against equity and Marxism? The great Martin, Mar Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream that my four little children one day will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Equity goes against what, Michael, what MLK died for. Equity only looks at the color of our skin. Our nation had fulfilled MLK's dream, and now we are trying to take that away. No one is being oppressed here. All you need to is to have is a good Christian Judeo work ethic and you can accomplish anything. Thank you. God bless you and God bless America. 
before we move on, here's another woman who does have a child in your school district. The whole idea of systemic racism to begin with is a theory or a philosophy. It's divisive, it's controversial, and it's ubiquitous. And right now, it's very trendy. And I think what you just heard there is a recurring complaint that parents, especially white parents, have had throughout this racial reckoning, which is, we are farther along than liberals say we are. We started making these changes 60 years ago around the civil rights movement. We've elected a black president in Barack Obama, and I don't want to talk about race anymore. Although these are the very people that despised Dr. King. They were the same people that hated this man. They are now quoting him. They always want to focus on that line of content of the character, right? Not the race. But they miss entirely everything he talks about systems of oppression, about systemic racism, about how we treat the poor, about how we provide economic opportunities for people. They skirt all of that and want to try to focus on this one sliver of a quote of of Dr. Martin Luther King. But there's also another part of this that I I, want to ask you about, which is that embedded in those quotes I just read is this feeling of, we need to move on, we have moved on, and why do we have to keep talking about this? And it strikes me as fascinating that white people, even now, seem to want to control the terms and conditions of not just engagement, but how and when we move forward. And given that you're part of a community that is almost 90% white, upper middle class, how have you navigated working alongside people from this community and talking with parents of this community? Yeah. You know, up till July 26th, right? And even beyond that, parents of Colleyville Heritage. I did not sit and meet with parents. Parents didn't request to meet with me about my views on systemic racism or about critical race theory. Like nobody was emailing me about this. Nobody was requesting meetings with me about this. This was all outside forces that were trying to influence this. So that was how I was able to navigate it. Right. Because those weren't the people that I was dealing with on a day to day basis. The people I was dealing with on a day to day basis, by and large, understood the things that we were working towards and knew that it's not some evil plan for us to say that we want to provide all students with equitable opportunities. They try to mix this word equity as if it's pie, like I'm taking something from you and giving it to somebody else. But these same people will come and sit in front of you and say, well, we want our student to have a 504 accommodation for the SAT test for oral accommodation and not understand that what you're asking for is essentially equity. They've got this misinterpretation of what that word means. It's something to fit their agenda. And one of the quotes, the first quote you mentioned, there was a lady that talked about God. That is another one of the the themes throughout this, people want to throw God out there. And, you know, we've always heard this. Well, we got, they're trying to take God out of schools or they're trying to tell kids they can't pray in school, which is complete idiocy. Like nobody's telling kids they can't pray in school, but that's something that they believe. They, they're they on this religious crusade. The fact of the matter is, yes, I'm a Christian man. I'm leading a school of people 
that may be Christian, they may be Muslim, they may be Hindu, they may be atheist, they may be agnostic, they may be all of these different things. I have got to make sure I'm providing every single one of them with the best absolute experience at school. But for them, and like you said, they've said this, what they're about is providing opportunities for Christian students. And as a public school, that's just not how we, that's not how we roll. Even though you are a Christian. Correct. I don't talk about my faith at school because that's not my position as a public school administrator to talk about my faith. As a Christian, I'm listening to these people talk and I'm thinking about who I follow as a Christian, Christ. And I think about his teachings and who he was and who he spent his time with. And what I hear from these people is strictly exclusionary. Anybody that does not believe the way that we do, damn them to hell. That couldn't be further from the teachings of Christ. It's bigotry and racism cloaked in Christianity. You think about it. We tend to be surprised at these things and how they come up. The Ku Klux Klan said they were following the word of God while they were burning crosses in people's yards and, and killing people and lynching them, right? And torturing black people, primarily in the South. You know, we have to be mindful of these people saying these things and, and talking about, oh, well, we just want our kids to be following God. And if that's the God you believe in, we, we're, not, we're not seeing the same God. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. It's definitely clear that some people are using God as a way to explain their argument. As you said, racism and bigotry cloaked in Christianity. And yet, in spite of these kind of outlandish claims that are made in that board meeting, as I mentioned, you were dismissed August 30th of 2021. They claim that you were dismissed not for critical race theory or the Facebook photos. They claimed you were dismissed because of emails that you deleted and other deficiencies in his performance. What emails did you delete? I'm not at liberty to discuss anything related to interactions with the school district or allegations of the school district. You can see what they alleged in my responses in writings prior to this meeting, but I, I can't discuss those per the terms of our settlement agreement. So just to be clear for people listening, you've denied in statements that there were any deficiencies in your performance and that you deleted emails. At least as I understand the information coming from me, Sam Fragoso, that's what I understand your response to be to those claims. You were also given the opportunity to stay at the school, subject to agreeing to a number of directives, but you decided not to take up those directives. I have a feeling you can't talk about what those directives are either. Correct. <laughs> okay. The long and short of it is, and this is in the public domain, you were dismissed for being the principal, not because of critical race theory or the Facebook photo. In spite of those claims that we've talked about, they pivoted to other grievances, but anyone who's reading between the lines know it's absolutely about the board meeting. And it's absolutely about the Facebook photo. My question to you is, once you've made this agreement, how do you explain what happened to your kids, to your wife? My wife, my, my kids, they're all familiar with, with everything that was going on in the background. What I hope that 
my wife, my kids, students that I serve, parents that I serve, people that are going through these same experiences, what I hope people are able to see that just because people say things, you only have to respond to your name, not what people call you, right? So you're only responsible to yourself and who you are. You don't have to answer to all these claims that people are trying to pin on you. And so I hope that people are able to see that it's okay to stand up and fight. You know, for me, it was getting legal representation and fighting. And that's what we did. And, you know, we've came to a settlement agreement and that will last in through August of 2023. That whole settlement agreement is in the public record. People are free to go and look and see what that says, where we issued a joint statement. But the long and the short, not all the time when you fight, do you get your desired outcome. And your desired outcome was to remain principal. Well, my goal was always to be, you know, school principal. There would have been nothing I would rather do than serve kids. They are my passion. That is my heart. Kids are the, are the heart of why I do what I do. I want to talk about that both in your personal experience, but also within this larger conversation the country's having right now about how and what we teach in American history. When you're removed from your post as principal, it comes around the time that 30 different states have proposed significant constraints of any substantial teaching of America's racist history. Much of that legislation I just mentioned has been introduced by Republicans that have entrenched themselves inside public school systems around a new culture war and the branding critical race theory, which you did not teach or add to your curriculum, they're branding critical race theory as fundamentally anti-American. And I guess my question to you is, what is the path forward to teaching kids about the history of America? It is vital if we are going to move forward as a nation. The only way you can get past something, you have to confront the harsh realities that have existed in that space. And what we have failed to do over time as a country is come face to face and confront, acknowledge and work to repair the harm and, and trauma that's been inflicted on people of color in this country since the inception. I get it that there are people in, in white America now, not all white Americans, but there are people in white America that confronting this history makes them feel a certain way. But that is not for me to alleviate or control. Sometimes when you have to confront things that are ugly, they're going to cause you discomfort. They're going to cause you maybe a bit of anguish or stress, if you will. But that's all part of growth. And until we become comfortable with the uncomfortable, we're going to be in this same rut, the same cycle. What you're seeing now with groups like Moms for Liberty, it's a repurpose of the Daughters of the Confederacy. If you look back after the Civil War, Daughters of the Confederacy came in and they tried to, well, they did. They didn't try. They rewrote textbooks. They called meetings, textbook committees. They informed boards. They made sure that there was a certain narrative that was shared about what happened during the Civil War and what slavery meant. And so we still deal with the vestiges of that to this day, because in our textbooks, the enslavement period is a, is a minor footnote. If you look through most state curriculums, 
dealing with a true and accurate history is not a reality in schools. And so I find it really, really, really ironic that they're saying they do not want this history that's going to paint America in this bad light that is going to make people feel guilty or feel discomfort. They're saying they don't want that in schools. But at the same time, what's being taught in schools is a very whitewashed, basic history that does nothing for the discomfort and the lack of acknowledgement of people of color in this country. But that's not something that they're worried about. They're worried about how this is going to make white kids feel. And I've got news for them. White kids are ready to have these conversations. <laughs> like, the kids are not the problem. This is a way for us to hold on to the past that we've seen time and time again throughout the course of our history. Anytime there's moments of progress, such as the protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, people coming together, you always see a backlash. You always see retribution. It is essentially the American way. Within your school, how did you find the white kids grappling with how this country was changing in front of them? We had a, a black student played on our football team that right after you know George Floyd's murdered, I'm you know, have been announced as principal. He coordinated an effort with the Colleyville Police Department to go down to Colleyville City Hall and all march together. Law enforcement, he led a group of students. When I got there with that group of students, there are hundreds of white students ready to take this pledge to here we are to stand against racism. And so I know that it's not the kids. The kids are open and willing and interested. They're worried about what's in textbooks. They got access to this thing called a smartphone. As soon as they say, hey, we don't want you to read this, they're going straight to their phone and finding that very thing. You've got kids coming home that have heard all their life that those Mexican people, they're all illegal, right? They, they, they're hearing this narrative at home, but then they're going to school or they're hearing things about the L LGBTQ plus community. And they're going to school and they have these people in their spaces, in their school, in their classrooms, and they're friends with them. And they're seeing something completely contrary to what they've been led to believe at home. And so when we sit at this dinner table now, me as a student, I'm looking at my mom, my dad, my grandma, whoever's there. And I'm saying, hey, I know you had this. You said this about this particular group. Let me tell you about my friend who identifies as this. And how much they mean to me. And that scares the living hell out of people that do not want this country to move forward. You brought up that image of going to a protest in Colleyville. And it reminds me of what it was like in June of 2020. Protests happening around the country, around the world, as diverse of a crowd protesting for racial justice as we've ever seen. And I'm thinking back to that time now, and it feels far away. It was a moment of activation. It was a moment of hope inside a gloomy pandemic. It was a moment where change, which gets thrown around and bastardized by every politician who's ever run for office, but it actually felt like change was not only possible, but inevitable. And in that, I think of you, 4.30 in the morning, writing an email, finally, after years of educating, finally feeling like your community sees and hears you. You write, I will be 42 years old next month. 
and never in my life have I experienced this level of support when it comes to issues of race. I cannot begin to tell you how encouraging it has been to have so many of my white brothers and sisters buck the status quo by calling, texting, unashamedly saying that black lives do indeed matter. And as I read that quote, almost two years removed, I wonder, how does it land with you? You know, I think back to that night and the sense of of hope and encouragement that I felt. You know, I, th- I think about the season that I that I just experienced, and I think about what are the similarities? What did I see that reminded me of that? Even in the midst of a storm, right? We had students that rallied together, not just in support of me, but in support of each other, right? Support of other students that come from marginalized communities. They stood up, they staged protests, they organized at board meetings, they spoke at board meetings. The students, if we're quite honest, if we go back and look at those board meetings, the students were the adults in the rooms. They got up, they spoke from their heart, they were eloquent, well put together. It was some of the adults on that toxic side that sounded like mad people. And so what I take from this and how I feel now, even in the midst of great challenges, I still find hope because the people that are doing the the huffing and puffing and, and calling names and those people have no clue. They have no idea. They don't care to know. What matters to me is that the people who I served, the people who know me, the people who really get it, that they're standing up and they're they're calling it out. And that's what I encourage people to do. I think what got us into this situation was that it's really easy to dismiss the foolishness that we hear from these people. Problem is, when you dismiss it, it's almost like enabling it. And for me, that's one of the reasons I had to speak out. If we sit in silence when these types of things are hurled at us, we embolden that behavior. And so I take hope in seeing that people have spoken up, they've shown up, and they've started to realize that they have to take meaningful action if we're going to combat these issues. It shouldn't be a surprise to us anymore that these things happen when we're on the edge of progress. They always happen. Anytime we're on the edge of progress and meaningful change, there will be a backlash. But I find hope in knowing that people seem to be rallying towards the cause And, you know, they're using their voice to bring about meaningful change. In that passage, you said that you find it encouraging that so many white brothers and sisters have made a commitment to meaningful action. Do you think when you look around your community that they've stuck by that commitment? That's very hard to gauge, right, without hard data. But just anecdotally, what I want to encourage people, it's real easy to be fired up and pissed off and showing up when there is conflict like actively going on in your community. But what happens when it's not front and center in front of you? What happens when things are settled, but there's still things going on around you, but not necessarily in your community? What are you willing to do? Are you still actively getting out there and attacking these issues and demanding action to make significant change. So to your question, you know, while it's hard to measure, I've seen people that have been very supportive of me throughout the course of my tenure 
as principal at Colleyville Heritage and then throughout the course of everything that happened in the community itself, they've continued to be fervent advocates for the cause. You have this unflappable quality about you. (laughs) I'm sure people have said that before. I've heard that at times. You know, you think of a carpenter, somebody that's doing a lot of work with their hands, right? There's these calluses that form. And so at some point, the things that they're doing and the work that they're doing doesn't affect them as much because they've got this tough skin that's built up. They can withstand these things that are coming at them, right? Cold weather, ah, I got it. Dry weather, boom, I got it. Like I say, I'm a firm believer in God and, you know, the things that have happened throughout the course of my life, I feel like they've prepared me to stand, you know, in the face of whatever comes my way. And and thankfully, you know, I've never had to stand alone, you know, whether it was when my mom was sick and dying of cancer or when I was a, you know, became a teenage father when I was still in high school um, or when my mom died of cancer right after my son was born. You know, all of these moments, there was always this support. There was always people that wrapped their arms around me. And so I've never forgotten that. What I try to do, especially on the heels of this, is just pay that forward. Every every chance I get, you know, that's why I went into education. I wanted to pay that that love and support and encouragement forward to kids, to teachers who had such an impact on me. And so I just try to pay that forward because people have helped me develop those those calluses, if you will, to endure the difficult seasons that we know will come throughout life. One difficult season, as you mentioned, was the passing of your mother. She died at the age of 40 of leukemia. And it's my understanding that one of her lifelong dreams was to become an educator. And it's something she didn't get to do. And when I read about that, I couldn't help but think of you in this moment as you and I sit here, an educator now not able to educate. How do you reconcile that? You know, my mother, I grew up in abject poverty and she she went to work every day of her life. She worked two jobs when she had to and she never really had that opportunity to finish school just based on life circumstances, not trying to hear too deep, but just things were going on, right? Like what? The life that we lived, there, there was a reason we were in poverty. You know, I, my, my father, who I, basically I hold no grudges. It is what it is. He's my dad, and it, and it is what it is. But the man was out in the streets, right? He was, he was dealing dope, and he was doing dope. And, he, you know, it was nights where I had to wrap him up because he had come in with his arms bleeding, right? And I'm dealing with his, the blood streaming down his arm. That was the kind of life that we lived, and, you know, money— as soon as it would come in, it was gone. And so we depended on, you know, a lot of services from community nonprofits and food stamps and welfare. You Like we were fortunate enough to have people that supported us. And so my mom, she, she went to work every single day, but it, she could never get ahead. And it wasn't until right before she got diagnosed with leukemia like it was right before she she said, I'm going back to school. Like she always wanted to be an English teacher. And I was so excited for her because I knew that was her dream. She wanted to be an English teacher. And so it was right after she got admitted to school to finish her degree that, you know, she got diagnosed with leukemia. One of the things that really pressed me, you know, when I went through, you know, some of the the challenges that I faced in finishing my degree, 
You know, my mother, even though she was literally dying, like she had poison running through her veins, but I would talk to her and she's doing homework. <laughs> she still wanted to finish that degree. It was something that she ended up leaving unfinished, but not for lack of trying, right? And so I, her last letter to me that I keep close by at the very end, she, she says, you know, I know sometimes like I get on to you and I'm on you about, you know, doing your schoolwork and all that. She said, I just want you to make something of yourself. I want you to go to school, get your education and, you know, make something of yourself. I know you're going to be able to do great and mighty things. And so, you know, I look back at that over the course of time and, you know, just thinking about where her strength and her spirit has been able to to push me to do things, even in her physical absence, that strength of spirit has pushed me to do things greater than I've ever imagined. Yeah, I think about where life has led me and my mother and the impact she had on my life is, um, it's immeasurable, man. It's immeasurable. Do you think the reason you still want to be an educator is because you also want to keep her dream alive? That's a great question. You know, my mom was never really about saying, hey, this is what you need to do. She always wanted me to find my own path, but she knew how much particularly sports meant to me. Like when I was a kid, again, I had coaches that if not for them, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'd be. So she knew that that meant a lot to me. But my mom was always just do what you love, do what brings you joy, do what you're passionate about. But I'll be lying to you if I said that knowing that she wanted to be an educator was kind of like, okay, I'm going to be able to fulfill a dream that was denied to her that she she wasn't able to achieve because she was taken too soon. And so, yeah, that was part of it. And as I move forward, right, and as I step into this next chapter, at the heart of who I am as a person, we know how important education is to me and serving kids is this opportunity to step outside of public education and really look at at a more macro level of things that are going on in our society has really sparked, I guess, what's really been inside all along. It's just that anybody that is struggling, anybody that is under the weight of poverty or of an oppressed group, a marginalized group, systemically kept out group, I want to advocate for them and I want to be part of making life better for them. I want to be part of bringing people together to solve, you know, complex issues. And so for, for me, it, it might look different moving forward. My last question, you talk about anyone struggling. And I think back to younger James Whitfield growing up in West Texas, struggling as a kid and on the football team. You have a coach named Kevin Carmona, and the first day you meet him, he extends his hand to you, and he welcomes you in. And it's the first time in your schooling, I think you're in seventh grade at this point, that you feel you are being seen. Kevin Carmona was one of the few black teachers at the school. And I have a sense that for many kids in your time, in this predominantly white community, you have also offered that sense of visibility. And so as you move forward, after everything that's happened, where you have people in your community trying to make you invisible, how do you remain seen? I think the way I do that, the way we do that, specifically as Black people, I'm talking from that lens right now, 
is the way that we've been shown to do that over time. This isn't new for us. This isn't a surprise for us that some people would rather shift us to the margins of society, dismiss the plight of Black people in this country, try to quell our voices. This is a playbook that's been used time and time again. And what we have to look to is the playbook that's been left for us by our ancestors. You know, and so I think about what they went through and they refused to be invisible. They were like, no, you're going to see me. You you are going to see me. And so for me, that's in me, the blood and toil and pain and resilience and joy, you know, in the face of really some unspeakable odds. People continue to rise up in the face of the same things we are up against today. That gives me inspiration. That gives me strength knowing that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants that came before me. It's going to be my choice if I'm going to retreat into invisibility. There's nobody out there that can make me invisible. They can try, but it's up to me to make my voice heard and be seen and be front and center and say, no, I refuse to be invisible. And I stand on the shoulders of those people that came before me. There are people counting on me to step up and say what needs to be said, do the things that need to be done to move the needle forward towards progress and meaningful change in this country. Well, I want to thank you for saying what needed to be said and for fighting the good fight. It's my hope that many people, after having heard your story here today, join you in that fight. I'll be here ready for it. I appreciate you. Dr. James Whitfield, thank you very much. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's our show. Special thanks to Patricia Suflita Wilson and, of course, Dr. James Whitfield. To learn more about Dr. Whitfield and his work, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. There you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Claudia Rankin, Dr. Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, Resma Manikam, Representative Ilhan Omar, Jelani Cobb, Dolores Huerta, Beto O'Rourke, and Gloria Steinem. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can also buy our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz. You can do those things at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. The second best thing you can do 
is rate this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, our show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Bastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mila Bell, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Wednesday for a bonus episode featuring W. Kamal Bell. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.